been going through this, this series, uh, uh, ICNU, we've walked through, uh, we're going to be going through basically the first seven chapters of Acts. Uh, at some point, I'll jump into the rest. It gets really fun. Uh, Paul takes off. Uh, right, But right, the first part is Jesus. So Acts chapter 1, let me catch you up. We're going to be jumping into, in just a minute, Acts chapter 6. But in Acts chapter 1 is where we began this series. Uh, at the first Sunday of January, we talked about how Jesus said to his disciples, I need you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait until Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out. So they go and they wait. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. It takes 10 days of them waiting. 10 days of, of just waiting for what God's going to do. And God shows up. And pours out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And last week we jumped into Acts chapter 3 where we looked at uh, Peter and uh, John healing the lame man at the temple gate. Oh, it was fun. Uh, you can jump on our Spotify channel or our Vimeo channel to watch those messages. Um, but then you get to chapter 5. And man, it gets interesting. Now, let me just read the, the, the little bit here. Uh, Acts chapter 5 verse 1 says, But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought, he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it to be the full amount. So he took, uh, sold some property, brings it to the, uh, to the apostles and says, hey, this is everything I've got. I've sold this land and here is everything it is, but it was actually just part of it. And it says, with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said to Ananias, why have you let the Satan fill your heart? Peter, he just brought you some money. You're going to go after him with Satan? It's filling his heart? It's pretty harsh there, Peter. Come on. You lied in, uh, to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And then he drops dead. Yeah, um... Let's preach about that for a second. Um, you want to talk about a hard subject to dive into? Um, yeah, let me just, real quick. Context group, we're going to dive into this a little bit deeper. Uh, there's a connection here. Uh, there's two connections to the Old Testament here. Uh, if you remember in, uh, in, uh, when the Israelites were coming out of the wilderness and into the promised land, they come into Jericho and God says to the Israel nation, everything in Jericho is mine. It's first fruits. It's the principle of the first. He says, when you get there, the first city that you get to and you take it, that's mine. Everything in it gets sacrificed and brought to the temple. And Achan is a man who says, ah, that's really nice, but look at all this stuff. God won't notice some of this missing. And he takes part of it and hides it in his tent. Achan and his old family die as a result. Now, the purpose is not about, hey, give your money to the church or you're going to die. Okay, that's not what this is saying at all. It's talking about the deception of saying, I'm giving everything, but holding part of you back. Now we're going to jump into that at some other point, but I need to keep going because I need to get to chapter 6. I, can only got, I only got one more week in this series for this message. So I decided to, to jump over this, but as I was preparing, I got a little conviction. Because how many times have we said, God, I'm going to give you everything, and then we held back a little? How many times have we, have we said, yep, that, I mean, I, I, I know I have, and thank God for a God that's full of mercy and grace, because there's been times where like, yes, God, I'll give you everything, it's all yours. And then I walk away from that moment, and I hold back something. And I want to challenge us to, to, to say, hey, God, if what, what we say we're going to give God, let's, let's really give it to him. Amen? 
Mm, okay, let's jump on. It's getting a little hot in here. Starting to sweat. Uh, so, uh, in chapter seven, or I'm sorry, chapter six. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time because we're going to be introduced to a guy here. Um, Got to turn it on before I can start clicking. Here we go. So, chapter six, verse one. You guys ready? Come on. Oh, we didn't do this. We need to do this real quick. We talked about the jail campus, but you guys over at the jail campus, you're part of our church family. We're so glad you're here with us. Come on, church. Welcome the men. Come on. Come on. Oh, man. I, I, I looked down on my notes. I forgot to say that you guys, there's, uh, it's uh, the 1st of February. You guys should have received in, in your email, if you give um, any way that you, you give, whether you give us your email, we sent you your giving statement. If you didn't get your giving statement, uh, we have it uh, ready for you. Uh, you can pick it up uh, out at the Connect uh, Center. If you tell them, uh, they'll get it uh, to you. So that, that, that. But I wanted to sh- say this, though. As I was preparing them, and I got paper cuts, which are the worst of worst things. Are they not? Paper cuts are like from the devil. Um, so I was, I was folding, though, the, the giving statements. And, man, when I got done, I'm not joking, the stack's about this. And I was overwhelmed with just your generosity and how amazing this church is and how you guys give and give and give. And we're able to do great ministry because of it. So thank you. God bless you. You guys are amazing. Amen? All right, so Acts chapter 6, we are finishing up this series, and uh, it says, but the believers rapidly multiplied. So remember, we started in Acts chapter 2, it says 3,000 were baptized that day. That's exciting stuff. We read last week that the church grew to 5,000 men. That's just men, 5,000 men. That's a, that went from 120 to five, over 5,000 in a matter of weeks. That's crazy growth. Now, here's what happens when, you're, when you rap, have rapid growth. You can't act like what you... When, you are, when you're a family of two, you have certain privileges and, that you can do, right? Like, you just... When, you remember when, some of you that are, have kids? You remember getting married? And then, like, at any moment, you're like, hey, it's date night. Let's go. Well, now, date night is different for those of you that have kids. Because now your life is no longer with just you two. Now it's the first child changes everything. You got to think differently. You got to get child care. You got to have diapers with you at all times. Everything changes, right? Immediately it changes. And then you get to having a family of six like mine. It feels like 60. Because it, it does. Everywhere you go, there, no one's prepared for a family of six. You go to a restaurant, and, and by the way, like we have four kids. So at most times, we have one of them has somebody with them. So it's like, it really does. You go into like, I, I go to the restaurant, and it's like, El Sands loves us. Because we go in, and we're like, hey, uh, party of 18. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, 10 minutes. You know where I go. Can I walk into a restaurant and get a seat? Doesn't matter how, like, the place could be empty. They got to take some 10 minutes to put the other 40 tables for us to sit down. But we can't act the way we acted when we were first married. That's what happens in a church, is that the way they were acting as, as 120, things had to change. That's what's happened with this church. We, our first Sunday, well, like, well, the week before our first Sunday, we had 36 on our, dream, on our dream team. On that launch team, we had 36. It's really easy to do 36. Like, I knew everybody's name. I knew who they were married to. I knew their kids. I knew how annoying their kids were. Not, no, none of, no. They were all wonderful kids. Jesus help us. Um, 
Those kids are now raising up and serving and doing awesome things. Uh, but I, I knew, we knew everything about each other. And it was easy when, you know, to have those conversations. When, when the church was too cold, it was, I could be like, hey, put a sweater on. I still do that. Um, almost weekly. There's actually, we have a connect group that makes, like, they knit things together, and they started making uh, mittens for each other. Uh, so on Sunday mornings, they could wear mittens to, to hold their, bunch of sissies. Anyways, um, it's the 9 o'clock service. Well, here's what happens. Uh, during the ser- 9 a.m. service, they always complain how cold it is. Well, that's because by the time you guys get here, it's 74 degrees in here, and I'm sweating, and anyways, I get to control the thermostat. Um, <laughs> so this is... Um, this is, it's, it's, it's easier. It's easier when you have a, a smaller number, but as you grow, you have to be, you have to operate differently. That's, that's why when we talk about you need to be in a connect group, because I can't serve. This is a church, like you, we, we designed this church, uh, intentionally at the size it is, with the chairs it is, uh, because we wanted it to feel intimate, where you could walk in and feel connected. But we're a church on a Sunday morning that's well over 250. Every Sunday, we have 250 plus that gather on a Sunday morning, which it doesn't feel like 250, and there is absolutely no way for me or my wife to minister to 250 people. That's why you have to be in a connect group. We have to operate differently. And when you get bigger, the bigger you get, more money, come on, more money, more problems. And exactly what happens in the church. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. There were, I love this. That I love that Luke included this. It makes me feel so much better. Because even the, the apostles, the holy Peter, St. Peter, had to deal with, with church issues. And so here it is. They have this the rumblings of discontent. It says the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Okay. Here's what's happening here. I had to do a little research and dig in to find out what is taking place here. So, do you guys remember in the Old Testament, there's the Babylonian exile. So when the Babylonians came in and to, into Israel, specifically Jerusalem, they conquered it, and then they took the best of the best. You, you read the book of Daniel. They took Daniel, they took uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They took them, and they took them back to Babylon. They, they dispersed them into different places. And they want, the reason they were doing that was to bring the Babylon, the, that their culture would become Babylonian. And so those people were sent there, and they lived there. And then, the, the, uh, as time went on, people would come back to Israel. But Alexander the Great did something when he conquered everybody. He said, you're going to speak Greek. Everybody's going to speak Greek. And so you, you had to. Uh, it was at the end of a spear. You're going to speak Greek. If you want to sell stuff, speak Greek. So, in fact, that's what they did. They all started to speak Greek. But as they came back to Jerusalem... We had two different groups. The ones who had been left in Jerusalem spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. The ones who left spoke, uh, spoke mostly Greek in, in whatever land they were from. So when they come back to Israel, we have two different groups. So the Hebrew-speaking ones were the ones who were, had lived in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem specifically, their whole lives, and their ancestors had lived there. The Greek-speaking ones, in some of your translations, will call, it's called Hellenist Jews. They were the ones that we would call Hellenist immigrants. Might, might relate to something we're dealing with today. Where we live in a culture where it was two, there's two different languages, that there's two different ways of living, but they're, wanting to do, they're going after the same thing. Like in the church where we have people who speak, come from one culture, and 
that, when there's another culture that's already existing and you're trying to figure out how to make those work. And it says that they were having issues with the way that the food was being distributed. So we don't know really what was taking place, but there was uh, somehow the church was involved in, in, the, in the distribution of food. And these Hebrew ones were getting favor over the Hellenist ones, or the Greek-speaking. So it says, we got an issue, so there, there, here we go, we've got a tension that's happening. And it says, so the twelve called a meeting in, of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now, immediately, some people, have, I've heard people say, well, that, the teaching is here, and running a food program is here. And they justify ignoring the food program for the sake of the teaching. It's not what this is saying. It's saying if the apostles do, uh, are spending time doing multiple things, they can only be so good at it. So they got it. I got to be focused on what I need to be focused on. It's not saying one's better than the other. So, uh, so the brothers selected seven men who were well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. And we said, we will give them this responsibility. Then the apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. I love this. He says, uh, you ever, I, it's one of the quotes I used to use a lot, and now I hate it. You ever hear the saying, um, well, if you're going to bring a problem, you better bring a solution. Yep, I've said that. I told my kids, you're going to bring me a problem? Yep, you better bring me a solution to that problem. And, and well, the problem is, is they're six, and they don't know the solution. A better way of saying it is, if you're going to, be part, if you're going to bring the problem, be willing to be part of the solution. See, just because I may know the solution doesn't mean I have to be the solution. That's good preaching right there. Just because I know the solution doesn't mean I need to be the solution. And here's what they they say, hey, that's a, there is a problem, and here's the solution. Now we hand it back to you, and we're going to let you take responsibility for it. You're going to take ownership of it. Right, there's a Top Gun's coming back out. You're going to see the new, yeah, Tom Cruise is back at it again. How this... 50-plus-year-old man is going to be in a fighter pilot. I don't know, but whatever. Uh, it sounds like they're stretching that one. But anyways, uh, so here's Tom Cruise. And you guys remember, like, when you see the, the fighter, fighter jets underneath the, the, where they get in? What's that called? They get in there? The cockpit. On the side of it, what's it say? Maverick. Their name. It has their name on the side. It has... Why do they do that? This Because it's not just for Top Gun. All of them... Every fighter pilot gets into his plane and it has his name or his nickname on the side of it. Why? Because the Army, the Air Force, wants them to take ownership of that plane. They don't actually own the plane. It's a multi-million dollar piece of equipment that they don't own. But the Air Force wants them to take ownership of it. Act like it's yours. Treat it like it's yours. See, that's what God wants, to do, what, what, uh, wants us to do with the church. He says, you don't own it. It's not yours. It's my church, but I'm putting it back in your hands, take responsibility of it, and treat it like it's yours. Says, uh, so we're going to give them the responsibility. The apostles can spend more time in prayer. Said everyone liked the idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That's important. They, they make sure that you understand that this man is full of the Holy Spirit, and then there's six others. And they says, uh, these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. 
It says, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. I wish I could spend more time on them getting, uh, the priests getting converted. But it, here, here's where I want to sit for just a minute, is that they take these seven men, specifically Stephen, because he's got a story that's going to follow this, and it says, because of what they did. So, God's message. See, what it takes is, it took seven men. they There was growth. It was happening. Things were going amazing. And it was all led by 12 men. But the 12 men realized, hey, the growth is going to plateau if we don't pull other leaders into this. If we don't equip others and give responsibility and hand over some ownership to these situations, it's going to plateau, and this is all the growth we're going to experience. And that's exactly what would happen. If the apostles said, we can do it all, we can go here, we can do this, we can do that, it would have stopped with the apostles. And when they died, the church would have died. And that's what you ha- see happening in churches in our nation is that there have been people who said, I'm the, the pastor's the leader, and the pastor needs to go do the visiting. The pastor needs to go to the hospital. The pastor needs to be leading the small groups. The pastor needs to do this. And then when the pastor burns out or dies, the church dies. See, the point is that this position, Mr. Pastor, we've given it some nice title. and some. I am not capable of doing all that. Not at all. I'm not even, like, I'm not even very good at some of them. Like, the whole, like, the pastor, you know, we need to go to counseling with the pastor. You do not want to be counseled by me. You don't. Like, I am not a good counselor. And that's, I'm not saying that as a, like, I, like if you sit down and, like, one, hey, I really want to meet with the pastor. And I, I'll meet with you. And then we'll sit down. And you're going to share with me some things. I'm going to go look at you and go, you're an idiot. That's, you can ask my kids. That's my way of relating. Like, like I look at them and be like, really? Like, like A moves to B and you're living in C. Duh. <laughs> you don't want me as your counselor. We have some really great people. My wife is amazing. She loves you. She'll treat you. She's really nice. She's really soft and sweet and to you guys. Um, uh, <laughs> But the, you don't want me to be all these things. We can't. The, the Ephesians 4 says that the pastor's responsibility, the role of the church, the leadership of the church, is to equip the saints. That's why you have to understand that the growth is based on investment and participation. Growth is based on participation and investment. There, there are seven men who say, yeah, we'll step up. We'll invest We'll do this. We'll, we'll, we'll give our participation. We're going to do this. And it says that, so we have Stephen stepping up as one of those. And in verse 8, it says that Stephen, a man full of God's spirit, God's grace and power. This is the second time that Stephen's described full of God's grace and God's power. Performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some of the men from the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. Oh. Look at this. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom of the Spirit with which Stephen spoke. Now, if you just read past this, you miss this. These boys are from the same synagogue that Stephen most likely came from. Stephen was a Hellenist Jew, meaning he came from a family that was outside of the Jerusalem Hebrew speakers. His buddies look at him and go, hey, wait a minute, you're helping disperse the food, not just to the Hebrews, but to the Greek widows. 
And they're, they're challenging him. They're questioning him. They're, they're saying, hey, what, what are you doing? And, and the same people that he was just a part of are now pushing against him. And how, <laughs> I know some of you have, go, have gone through this. You have walked in a relationship with God and you took another step with God. And the people that you were doing God, was spending in relationship with God once are now against you because of what you're doing with God now. So they, per, they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this, is, this, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses and hand it down to us. I read that fast because it doesn't matter what they're arguing about. The point is, he's got people that he was once was in a relationship with, doing life with, walking in a relationship with God with, are now against him. And they're lying about him. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. In the midst of him getting pushed against, in the midst of the things starting to turn against him, God shows up. And some of you need to hear that. It's going to be in the midst of your most difficult moment where you feel like everybody's against you, that you need to not depend upon your knowledge and your wisdom. You need to let God reflect off of you. Amen. Don't let it be about your reputation. Let it be about his glory. So here he says, I, I got this. I'm, I'm, I'm. So as he's then uh, chapter seven, it says, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, again, his family former friends, with him. Listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor, Abraham. Now, this is what is amazing of what takes place. Because in this, Stephen doesn't say yes one time. Stephen says in this passage, yes, six different times. The first time he says yes to being a believer. I'm going to follow Jesus. Then he says yes to his calling. Then he says yes to, his, to doing his calling. Because there's a big difference between being called and doing what you're called to do. See, a lot of us, I see this way too often, we'll hear God call us. And there'll be a moment in the service, and in, in at a conference, or uh, whatever it is, in the midst of a small group, and you'll know it, you'll hear it, you'll feel where God is calling you to go, and you're like, I'm feeling called by God to go here. And you leave that moment, and you do nothing about it. Saying yes to your calling is different than doing your, saying yes to doing your calling. Good preaching, Josh. Keep it going. <laughs> then he says yes to allowing God to reflect off of him. And then he says yes to allowing his, him to be used as, a, as proclaiming God's message. And the last thing he says yes to is at the end of chapter 7, he's preached the, the best summary that you'll ever see. If you want to, like the Old Testament for dummies, read chapter 7 of Acts. It's the Old Testament all summed up in one chapter. He, he speaks the Old Testament. He proclaims to them that you need to follow Jesus and that you guys are the ones that killed him. They get mad at him and they say, we're going to stone him. It says, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. The last thing he said yes to was releasing his greatest trouble to God. He said, it doesn't matter how big the situation is, how big the difficulty is, I'm not trying to control it, I'm releasing it. Receive my spirit. Release your greatest problem. 
See, these are all yes, yes, yes. Over and over and over again, he's saying yes. There's a song. We, we, uh, those of you that have been part of Authentic Church, you remember a song? I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. Taylor, you back there? Taylor, come out here. You guys ready? You guys remember this? If you, if you remember it, come on, sing it with me. Ready? <laughs> come on, somebody. Ah. I'm trading my sorrows. Come on. I'm trading my shame. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Come on, the second verse. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. I'm trading my pain. Come on, somebody. I'm laying them down. For the joy of the Lord. And then, come on, the, co- for, the chorus, ready? And I'm saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Come on, you know it. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You know it, come on. Yes, Lord, come on. You better stop, you better stop. I'll, I'll go, I'll go cray, I'll, we're going to go cray-cray in here. And I'm going to like, the Holy Spirit going to move, and I won't be able to finish my message. We, we love that song, don't we? Yes, Lord. I'm laying my pain, my sickness, my shame, my difficulty, my sorrows. I'm laying them down because God said yes. And his yes is settled. God's yes is already settled. When you come to him and say, God, will you forgive me? The answer is already yes. When you come to say, God, would you, would you really save me? Yes. Would God really put a purpose within me? Did he really design me in, the, in, in my mother's womb? Yes. Did God really, would God really clean up the mess I've made with my life? Yes. Would God really redeem me? Yes. His answer is yes, 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 and amen, yes. At 9 a.m., brother, got with me on that. You got all, it's like, I like Jesus too. <laughs> yes. His answer to you is yes. And we love that. But every time he says yes to us, he's turning back to you and saying, will you say yes to me? He's given you an opportunity to say yes. And Stephen lays out for us how, we, how many times we have to say yes. It's a cycle of yes. Yes, I believe in you and I will follow you. Yes, you have called me and I, will, I hear your calling. Yes, you've called me to do something and I'm going to do it. Yes, I'm going to reflect your glory as I walk in these streets and I walk into my job. Yes, I will do what you've called me to do. And yes, I will proclaim your gospel in the circle of influence that you have placed me in. And yes, I will release my greatest problem to you. And yes, I'll believe you, that you will fulfill my greatest need. And yes, I will call, I believe that you have a new calling for me. And yes, I will do, you see the cycle? It's yes, 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 yes. It's your next S. I don't care, yes. <laughs> I don't care where you are in your relationship with God. You have a next yes. When you say yes to him, there's some things that you need to understand. There's four things that I want to lay out for you that you need to understand about his saying yes to Jesus. The first thing is that you need to understand that saying yes Put service over status. Saying yes puts service over status. See, serving someone is not about the task, it's about your mentality. 
This is what Paul wrote in Philippians. says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So when they were serving the widows, it was because they wanted to serve the widows. It was not about, I'm here and you're there, so therefore I serve you because you're lower than me. When the apostles were, were preaching and praying, it wasn't because they were the, these people that were preaching and praying. No, they were doing it because they knew the gospel of Jesus Christ needed to be spread to everybody. It wasn't about the task. It was about the mentality of the task. The third, second thing you need to know about uh, saying yes is saying yes puts we over me. Saying yes puts we over me. Seven men said yes to placing, uh, to serving the we. Seven men changed the dynamic and the growth pattern of the church. Without them saying yes, the plateau happens. Again, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4.10. He says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. I, I, I wish I could spend more time on, on spiritual gifts and talking about them because we need to understand it's not something to be scared of to be running away from. Your spiritual gift is given to you so that you can serve the we. Use your gift to serve in the position of raising others up, having the mentality of saying, I'm going to place others above myself. That is what we do. When we serve, we put ourselves in position. The power of me is minor, but the power of we is major. The, the decision you need to make, do you want to make a minor impact or a major impact? Mother Teresa said it this way, none of us, including me, ever do great things, but we can do small things with great love, and together we can do something wonderful. The we is so much more powerful than the me. That's what's the power of this church. How many of you in this room can put your hand up and say, I have uh, built a school in Nicaragua? Okay, there's a couple of you. You know what's true about this? Every one of you should raise your hand. Every single one of you have played a part in building a school in Nicaragua that is serving hundreds of kids. That's what you did. You wouldn't be able to do that by yourself. But together, we are able to every month send a portion. How many of you have planted thousands of churches around the uh, United States of America? Uh, hundreds of churches around the United States of America. Go ahead. Everybody raise your hand. You're part of ARC. We're part of ARC. We give monthly to ARC. Every Today, a church was launched, I believe in, in uh, Colorado, today, through ARC. Why? Because you and I were giving to the we. And people in Colorado are going to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because you gave. Combined with the we of this church and other churches around the nation. The power of we is so powerful. Then the uh, third thing that you need to know about saying yes is it puts purpose over protection. It puts purpose over protection. <laughs> this is where we, we, I spent a lot of time on this last week, so I'm not going to dwell here long, but we have the, the, our uh, con, uh, connect group on Thursdays, and we were talking about this, how, man, how, how are they able to go from being this group of guys that were hiding in their houses with locked doors in Luke, the end of Luke, to being these guys that were in the, at the Solomon's porch in the public, in front of everybody, worshiping Jesus. The difference was not the resurrection of Jesus. The difference was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. They knew their purpose. They weren't worried 
my son, my son said, he's in the group with us and he's talking. He says, uh, my oldest, and he says, hey, you know what the, the difference was? Is they weren't afraid to die because they knew their purpose and where they go. Wow. Yeah, they weren't afraid to die because they knew if they were to die that their purpose would have been fulfilled and they would be in the presence of Jesus Christ. So when you understand that your, your purpose is so much bigger, Jesus was preparing his disciples for that when he, said, when he tells them the story. He says, then king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it as if you were doing it to me. When your purpose is greater than you, you won't ask for protection. You'll go after your calling. The fourth thing is that when you're saying yes, put your calling over comfort. Put your calling over comfort. Again, Jesus was calling his disciples to this. And in Matthew 16, he says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, Jesus had a purpose, and he didn't pray for protection because he knew his purpose, and it was you. He knew he was going to the cross to die for his church, for his bride. That's you. And then he said to his disciples, hey, get ready. Follow my example. Don't pray for protection. Know your purpose. Know what you're called to do. And know that your calling is not going to lead you to comfort. It's going to lead you to the cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. I was trying to figure out a way to sum this message up and bring it to a, a closing point. And immediately, it's like, you know, there's this tension between the Hebrew speaking and the Greek speaking. And there's this tension that's happened. And it immediately took me to uh, the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. He, said, he tells a story and the man has been beat up, left for dead on the side of the road. And here comes the first Jew. And the Jew looks at him and says, I, I can't touch him because if I touch him, I'll become unclean and I won't be able to do what I need to do at the temple. So he goes around him. Second one comes along, sees the man on the side of the road, notices him, but says, if I touch him, it's going to affect me. He keeps going. Then comes the Samaritan. The Samaritan is the race that the Jews hate. There's been friction with, between them for generations. The Samaritan looks at the beat-up Jew on the side of the road and says, it's my responsibility. If I don't do something, he's going to die. And with his money, on his donkey, with his time, takes him to the closest inn and sets it up for him to be taken care of. It all has to do with investment, and participation. Am I willing to step into a place to invest myself? Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did a message on this, and he said the difference between the first two and the Samaritan was the question they asked. The first two asked, if I help, how will it affect me? The third one said, if I help, how will it affect him? So my question to you today is, What's your next yes? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone? Are you willing to move into a position where it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable? Are you willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ to your next yes? Are you willing? 
Lord Jesus, right now I pray anointing on this place. That you would, right now, allow us to feel your presence and to be challenged and equipped to take that next step with you. To be prompted, to be motivated to follow you to our next yes. For some of you, this morning is your, you need to say yes to believing in him. It may be a moment where you're saying, you know what, I, I, I believed him in the past, but I, I haven't really trusted him. I, I've, there's been some pieces I've said I would give everything, but I really haven't. So today, I'm recommitting and I'm really going to believe him. I'm going to follow after him. If that's you this morning, I want to pray this prayer. And maybe for some of you, it's the first time you've ever heard this opportunity where you're going to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to believe that he did die for me. If that's you this morning, I want to pray this prayer of commitment. You can pray it and use the same words I use. You can use your own uh, verbiage if you want. You can say it out loud or quietly. It's not for me. It's for you. But would you pray this with me? Jesus, thank you for leaving your comfort zone for following your calling, fulfilling your purpose, and dying for my sins. I want to follow after you in Jesus' name. I repent. I give you my life. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For the rest of you, I want to pray this prayer of giving you the opportunity to say yes. Jesus, bless these people right now. Equip them to say yes to their next yes. Give them the ability to know, give them the wisdom to, to what the next step is. Put the right people around them. I pray a prayer blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen.